and welcome to another edition of TMX the Podcast. Welcome to listeners new and old. Today, we're pleased to introduce to you a new subseries called Crossing Intents. I am your co-host, Doug Clark, head of equity market structure and market design for TMX Group, and my co-host will be Corey Garriott. Corey is the head of research at the TMX Group. Prior to that, he was a principal researcher at the Bank of Canada. This new feature, Crossing Intents, will be a discussion of global market structure trends and events with a Canadian lens. Today, we're going to be speaking about a number of proposals put out by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, around trading, particularly around retail trading within the equity markets. Corey, we're sitting here in Toronto. We're working for a Canadian exchange, and we're going to have a new feature, and we're going to start by talking about U.S. proposed legislation. Why would we do that? Why do we care? I think it's because U.S. equity markets are exemplary. They are so deep, they're so well-developed technologically that any change they make there happens in kind of an ideal laboratory setting. There's nothing going wrong in U.S. equity markets that would sort of distort the effect of some policy change or some new technology. So if you're watching U.S. equity markets, and we all have to in fixed income, in FX, everywhere else, then you can know what might work and what might not work for your own market. And especially for markets that need a little bit more care and attention, fixed income, anybody, some of the lessons that we could take from equity could be used there as well to try to get that market into a, you know, a different shape. So we're not going to dig too, too deep into each of the roles. We're going to kind of keep the conversation at a high level, philosophical, and, and what's the impact. But let's talk about what is the general idea. So last December, December 14th, Chairman Gensler and the SEC published five rules, total of a little over 1,600 pages. Four of those were aimed at retail trading. There were some reporting rules. There were some best X standards. There was a rule forcing retail orders to go to auctions before they go to wholesalers, and we'll get into a little bit of that. And there was a rule that maybe most impactful is around changing tick sizes and exchange fees. What's the general idea? What do we think we're trying to solve for? What do we think Chairman Gensler is trying to solve for? Yeah, you you would think sometimes know more about this than me. You're a bit more plugged in, Doug. But when I you know when I talk to people like you and others, I, I keep thinking. The SEC, especially Chairman Gensler, has never really been a fan of payment for order flow. I mean, it kind of sounds bad, payment for order flow. It sounds like a kickback. It's like something that you wouldn't want to do. And they look at that and the proposals, you know, we read through them to the extent we can. Oof, 1,500 pages. Should this even be possible? And you keep hearing mention of a small group of wholesalers to whom 90% of retail orders are routed. So, hmm, they have... And I don't get this. They've not chosen to ban it or address it outright. And, and that's kind of what's curious about all 1,600 of these pages. It's that they seem to want to make it as unpleasant as possible. I don't know. Walk up right to the line of banning it without banning it. Let's take a kind of a step back here, Doug, and maybe you can help me with this. Like, what's going on with the SEC that they're making such wide-ranging proposals. I mean, we'll get into how there's a new auction facility that they're proposing, but it's really quite a few changes all at once. What's the role of the regulator here? Well, this is an interesting question. What is the role of the regulator and how do you get it? Do you regulate through rule proposals? Do you regulate through enforcement? And they seem to be doing both at once, and they seem to be coming with four or five attacks on one business type. And so they're not particularly thrilled that Retail flow, which can be 30 to 35% of total volume in the U.S., 
is sent to this small group of wholesalers, these bilateral relations where the rest of the market isn't able to participate. They use the rest of the market to inform price. This is, we don't want to say dumb money, that offends people, but it is the <laughs> participants who are probably the least informed in the short or micro term. We're talking milliseconds to seconds. They may be incredibly well informed about the particular company they're investing in because it's the sector they work in. Maybe it's even the company they work for or it's their hobby and they understand what drives it. They understand that you know all their friends are buying this game and so that gaming stock should do well, whatever. But within a section of microseconds to seconds, they don't understand market dynamics to the extent that institutions and so-called prop firms or high-frequency trading firms would understand those market dynamics. This flow is being taken out of the market at large, and there seems to be a philosophy that if you take the, the less informed money, it's kind of like going into a poker room and taking away the people that haven't played the game very well or who maybe have, have had a few too many drinks and yeah. aren't playing well. If you take them away from the poker game, the rest of the game gets tougher and it's unfair to the rest of the players. So there's a desire to bring these players back to the market to have everybody trade at once. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of data to back up the argument that it's going to make for better markets or that anybody's being harmed by the existing relationships. Yeah, let's talk about this. Uh, you know, they always say retail is dumb money and that kind of thing. But we saw, for example, with the GameStop uh, controversy that retail often can uh, move markets quite well on its own. There's a lot of work trying to measure what it is about retail that makes it so valuable and, and monetizable so that you'd want to trade with it as opposed to uh, any old order on the open market. You know, I think of work about price impact. A retail order, when it comes to the market, doesn't move the price as much as, say, an institutional order would. I think probably you've routed some of those in your own time, right? Exactly. The, the institutional order is informed at least by the remaining size of its own order. So if they're buying a 1,000 shares and they know there's a million behind they're far more informed than a retail client that's buying the same thousand shares but has no order behind. That's a really good point. Institutional orders come in like sets, you know, one, two, three, four. They, they buy 100 shares there, 500 shares there, and they're building up to something like a million dollars in notional value of the security that they're trying to buy. But when you or I go to the market, often our only trade is the one that we do. And that means that we're not going to be moving the price afterward. In fact, it's done. And so therefore, I think people really would like to segment this flow and interact with it. And that's kind of what's gone on in the U.S. Like we have this whole history with Reagan MS in uh, you know, the early 2000s of trying to set up a national market system to promote order interaction and competition among the venues. And it's kind of, I feel like that's the high level idea of, what, of the whole SEC apparatus. And then what the rule didn't do, when it established a tick size, it said that quotes, that is limit orders, have to occur on the tick grid, but not the trades. And retail orders, which have less price impact, and, you know, they're just less dangerous to trade with, some people started saying, well, I would like to trade with those, and I'll even offer them a little bit better than the tick grid. And so could we somehow separate them, and do the rules permit that? And it turns out they did. This is an unknown in other market structure. If you think about the FX markets, currently I can get a streaming market from a number of banks and they will look at my behavior and how my trades impact them over time. They'll look at my alpha or determine how smart or toxic my flow is. And if my trades are more benign, more random, less informed than your trades, I'll get a slightly tighter quote. 
The same is true in the fixed income market. Equities has always been the market that tried to put everybody together. Mm. And when you put everybody together, it's kind of like 2008, 2009 when we put everybody in the clearing facilities had to go to centralized clearing and they got the same credit. Some people benefit. So the guys with triple B credit might get better rates, whereas the folks with the triple A get slightly worse rates. But as a whole, the philosophy is the market is stronger if everybody gets one rate. That's right. The motivating vision here is one in BBO for all, right? Everyone should be trading at the same market prices. And there's not a separate market for you, not a separate market for you. The SEC wants to put every, it's the vision, right, of one market to rule them all. And I think that's kind of what's going on with these proposals. They see a deviation these wholesalers from the philosophy of one big integrated open market with, yes, competition between venues so that, you know, we can cut the trading fees. There'll be competition on trading fees, maybe innovation on order types, that kind of thing. But on the whole, we're all trading at the same NBBO at the same time with everyone. And wholesale breaks that. And you get into the competition aspect and Chairman Gensler constantly talks about order by order competition. Competition in the retail to wholesaler space in the U.S. is done on a weekly, monthly, or even quarterly basis where the retail firm goes to the various market makers and negotiates better price improvement, better payment for order flow. And all of the orders get that, whether it's as much as they would in the open markets. In some cases, they would do better in the open markets. In some cases, they wouldn't. So there's a little bit of cross-subsidization Chairman Gensler wants this to happen on an order-by-order order basis. Try and get the midpoint. If you don't get the midpoint, go to an auction. And we'll go into to some of this a little later. If you don't get that, you're trading that illiquid stock that maybe doesn't have a lot of liquidity. It's tough to get done. You may end up with a worse experience. <laughs> but if you're trading the hyper-liquid stock, you may end up with a better experience than you're currently getting at the markets. And that whole cross-subsidization has been in our marketplace for years, as we set up market-making programs, we will often give market makers slightly better economics than they might otherwise derive in the most liquid names so that they will subsidize markets in less liquid names, which allows companies to come to market earlier when maybe they don't have a following, when maybe natural liquidity wouldn't be great, create a secondary market, and it sort of helps the whole ecosystem. He's playing around with that. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that's going on here. I feel like all these four proposals are kind of integrated in a way, like they're all addressing different aspects of uh, kind of what the SEC and Chairman Gensler in particular doesn't like, and they operate as a unified whole. It's almost like he's got four or five different guns aimed at the same animal, and he doesn't care which one kills the animal. He just wants the animal to be gone. I'm not convinced yet I've seen the argument that this animal has got to go. I'm not saying it doesn't, but I think they're still open for debate. But if we're going to do it, it seems to me like we should have one. Very, yeah, just ban it. Yeah. Just it, get rid of it. Like if you, if you don't like it, get rid of it. And yet there's this, it's almost kind of pussyfooting around the issue. Like does he want to get rid of it? Does he not want to get rid of it? We don't know. And I wonder what's going on here then. I mean, uh, there's been speculation that Chairman Gensler is trying to demonstrate a sort of, you know, a capacity for finding solutions, complex solutions, but solutions for hard problems that we have in market structure. Some people say this is a career thing. He wants to demonstrate this so that he could move on to, say, a better position, although SEC chairman is still pretty good. Surprisingly, some of that speculation has come from his fellow commissioners, which is historically unheard of. There seems to be some legitimacy maybe to, to some of these arguments, but there's a certain amount of politics at play here. We have seen past proposals 
from past commissions, including a rebate pilot that was proposed by just the mm. latest commission, Chairman Clayton and Brett Redfern as the director of trading and markets, where they lost it in the courts. They were unable to proceed. So perhaps you go to market with four or five solutions, hoping that one of them gets through the courts. Let's see what sticks, guys. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, you were talking about politics. Another thing that strikes me about what's going on with the SEC is kind of the lack of unanimity. When they voted on these proposals, uh, only one of them got five out of five commissioners, which was the tick size. With the others, you see the Democrat-Republican breakdown in the appointees. It's a little sad to see, actually, in the SEC, the same sort of political discord in an agency that we've seen in a lot of the Western countries these days where, you know, people don't trust institutions. It seems like the SEC now is not at home with itself either. Yeah, it's certainly the, the divide, not to get into politics, but the divide politically, to your point, not just within regulatory bodies, but across the horizon. It's a challenge for anybody to get anything done, unfortunately. And everybody has a different set of facts, which I'm comfortable with people having different opinions. When we start having different facts, we are in mm -hmm. a troubling space. So speaking of facts, maybe we could go through a few of these proposals and then try to kind of tie them into what we think Chairman Gensler's objective here is, uh, which is, again, to sort of make payment for order flow or internalization as unpleasant as possible without actually banning it. For me, the proposals that everyone likes the best are the tick size and the auctions. So let's do something off to the listeners here and actually delay that conversation because I think people miss the importance of the other ones. I would agree. I think the, the best execution one is having read a number of notes and listened to a number of pundits is perhaps one of the more damaging ones to the wholesaler model, but isn't getting much attention because of the two bigger ones. And that might be part of the strategy yeah. is I'm going to put out two very inflammable proposals and hope that everybody is distracted and doesn't see me sneaking through the door with the third one. So for our listeners, the RegBexX proposal is the final delivery at last of a best execution rule for the SEC, which is lacked one. It took it mostly from FINRA. And the rule is that the broker must exercise reasonable diligence to ascertain the best market under their prevailing market conditions. And they have to have lots of written procedures that they can give to the SEC to comply with the standard, review their policies annually, and review the execution quality of their orders quarterly. There's an ominous scooping here to government securities broker-dealers, by the way, but this being an equity focus, we'll just sort of put a pin in that. What do you think is going on here? So when I see this thing about reasonable diligence, you know, of course they're exercising reasonable diligence. There must be something more. Well, first off, you talked about government securities, but it also mentions option markets and mm. payment for order flow in option markets is a multiple the size of payment for order flow to equities. If you harm that market, you do a lot more harm to the wholesalers in question. But the other thing is there's guidance here that probably solves everything he's trying to solve. There are some statistics within this proposal that suggest that wholesalers are able to get the midpoint something like 52, 53% of the time mm -hmm. when they send orders to various dark pools. And as a result, if they're able to do that, then retail should be able to get the midpoint by going to these pools themselves. And so BestX would suggest that you should try and send these orders to midpoint before you go anywhere else, or you better have a good reason for not doing that. Now, if retail starts sending these orders to the midpoint and they get anywhere near those levels of midpoint execution, which I don't think they will, I do think there's some selection bias where the wholesalers 
know when midpoint is likely to be available and so are choosing when to send a midpoint as opposed to just all random retail orders going there. The midpoint is likely to be less. Although if every retail order starts going to midpoint, you may see institutional algos change their behavior and mm. stock those pools more often. But if if retail even gets 20% of their volume filled in the midpoint, those are most likely to be the juiciest orders. Mm. And then the orders that end up going back to the wholesalers will be exhaust or sludge, as, as we sometimes call it. The economics, which are far less interesting, if you take away you know, my 20% of my most profitable orders, there's nothing left. It's the old 80-20 rule. And if I'm not making money, why am I going to you know, work hard to satisfy the orders that I'm losing money on? That's right. I think another thing going on here is that the SEC wants to get internalizers in particular, because they're in scope now, to say what they're doing before they do it. And so this is so the SEC can find out whether they're doing what they say they're doing by collecting data on them. So this is a, another way to make PFOF kind of unpleasant. And I want to come back to the midpoint liquidity thing that you said. We recently uh, went over some cool papers in order to do this podcast, and uh, there's a really cool recent one by Robert Pitalio and Bob Jennings, both at Indiana universities, looking at execution quality for retail orders sent by a broker who does not accept a payment for order flow, but who does route orders to wholesalers anyway. And what they find is that these retail orders are getting midpoint liquidity about 45% of the time. And it's a really cool result because I think what a lot of people believe about wholesalers and what they're doing is that they're giving de minimis price improvement to retail clients with respect to the NBBO. They're giving them, you know, a basis point or something of price improvement, but otherwise, I mean, it's basically the same thing. You're getting the NBBO. And this paper, and there's another one, shout out to Andre Shilko at Wilfrid Laurier here in Canada, that finds very similarly that retail orders get sometimes 26% price improvement with respect to the bid-ask spread at these wholesalers. I think in the Battaglio paper, the average price improvement is close to a cent, which if you total it up, is about $8 a retail order. That's roughly what commissions used to cost. So they point out that midpoint liquidity exists elsewhere, but I think the wholesalers are actually getting that a good bit of the time, at least according to some of the data that people have gotten access to. It's really insurance. There's a certainty of execution. I know that when I get fire insurance on my house that I'm paying more than the expected value of the rebuild multiplied by the percentage chance that I have a fire. Hmm. But I pay it for the certainty, and that's kind of what the retail is doing. Now, on an order-by-order order basis, there are people that are going to be worse off. And this is the subsidization I talked about earlier. How do I tell Corey that he got a worse fill than he should have gotten on XYZ, but three other people got slightly better on some illiquid trades? That's what he's going after. But again, the retail trades, typically they don't do one trade in a lifetime. And if they do, they're out by a penny or two. It's very de minimis difference. You're trying to create an ecosystem where – overall, the market is better. Mm. And I think overall, we all feel that with insurance, we're better. Yeah. After all, we buy it. Right. So I think with the proposal on Rule 605, which is a big reporting proposal, it, together this will give the SEC tools, I think, to monitor wholesalers better because the big change in 605, which is the one that requires broker-dealers to report their execution quality, in addition to reporting a bunch more metrics for a bunch more types of orders, is that it scopes in not just exchanges but also the wholesalers. This is going to give the SEC, I think, a rope to hang them by if they find that the wholesalers aren't doing as good a job as they think. Yeah, this is related to the SEC in 2019 passed a rule. And as of, I believe it was March of 2020, 
institutional investors, institutional dealers had to produce a similar report, a 606 report for any institutional client that asked for it. It was a massive lift. It was millions and millions of dollars of effort for all of the dealers. And I can tell you working on the sell side at the time, the number of institutional clients that asked for it was incredibly small in the single digits. And the reason is partly because they felt like if they asked for the report, they were going to have taken data and then the SEC or FINRA could ask them, what did you do with the data? And as soon as you have the data, you have an onus to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And partly because the data they had themselves was far superior to what the government was forcing. And the government was forcing it in a format that was largely unworkable. Mm -hmm. Now, to Gensler's credit, they are working on making the, the format somewhat more readable. But I do question what percentage of retail investors are ever going to look at a 605 report and move their account from Schwab to Fidelity or vice versa. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's not going to happen. They're there because it's related to their bank. It's ease of money transfer. It's tools that they're comfortable with. It's just too difficult to move from one financial institution to another, there's a certain amount of inertia. I'm imagining calling my broker and saying, hi, I don't like Jane Street that much. Could you send it over to Citadel? Right. Just never going to happen. So it's a massive lift, and I'm not sure that the upside is anywhere near the effort that's going to be. Yeah. This is totally about like trying to collect data on the wholesalers yes. uh, under the guise, I think of improving, what is it the proposal says? Uh, basically, it says that markets have come a long way, technology has improved, so you know now our reports can improve. But when you read these as a whole, again, it has to do with payment for order flow, unpleasant, again, without banning it. So speaking of payment for order flow, shall we get to the to the meat? The, yes. The, the red meat. What do, you, what do you want to do? You want to do tick size? You want to do Let's options? do tick size. Let's go with tick size. That's fun. It's okay. juicy. Oh, and I've been waiting for it so, so long. Um, so, it, you know, it's funny, just a few years ago, the U.S. was testing a wider tick size. Well, move fast, break things, I guess. So just for, you know, everyone getting up to speed on this, the proposal is going to change the regulatory tick size in the United States from one cent to a variety of tick size programs. The idea here is that the tick size, the market's bid-ask spread in the previous quarter will be used to set the tick size for the next one. So if you have a very liquid stock with a tight bid-ask spread, its tick size will decrease. If that stock gets less liquid, that is if its bid-ask spread widens, the tick size will actually get wider over time. This is, I think, a much better implement of a more granular tick size than MIFID II in Europe. MIFID II has, I believe, a 20 crossed with 10 volume and volatility or liquidity, I think, thresholds to set a very like granular program of tick sizes. The SEC only has four, 0.1 cent, 0.2 cent, 0.5 cent, and 1 cent. See, my overall take here, I don't know about you, is that this is something that should have been coming for a long time. I agree on the most liquid names. I don't know that we need to change anything more than a few hundred stocks in the U.S. and probably a few dozen in Canada where they're tick constrained. Stocks that trade with a penny-wide spread all day long and would trade with a tighter spread if they were allowed. We do have to understand that there are some impacts, impacts to message traffic, impacts to the speed of trading. There are some behavioral impacts. We all know what it's like when you post a bidder offer on a stock and see you see almost instantaneously, as quick as you can blink, somebody is, has improved your bidder offer by a penny. It's a little annoying, but I think in the last five, six years, retail has gotten used to that. 
institutional traders have gotten used to that. Now seeing somebody improve your bidder offer by one-tenth of a penny for a couple hundred shares, it's so de minimis, it barely rounds up to a penny when the trade is complete. So somebody getting priority over your order by offering you know, price improvement that is so small is going to be challenging for some participants, but it, there is some economic sense to the idea. To me, this is first of all something that should be done for its own sake. And second, of course, this is targeting payment for order flow. Yeah. So for its own sake, a more liquid security, I feel, deserves a tighter minimum tick. And the reason is uh, has to do with the, well, the reason that we have tick sizes in the first place. If you have too many price points on the limit order book, people could come in and play predatory trading strategies with market maker liquidity. They can do what's called price matching. They can quote a little limit order of a minimum size just underneath, let's say, the best ask. If they get filled and people keep buying, they'll back out at the best ask. If not, and people start selling, they've just made money. It's extracting the optionality of the limit order, and you can make money this way because half the time you pay a little cost. The other half of the time, the people begin selling after the buying, and you can make money on your position. So you don't want too many price points in order to sort of discourage quote matching. But if you can, you do want more so that you can encourage people to compete on price and deliver whoever it is that's trading, whoever it is that's crossing the spread, a better deal. That's partially the justification for this. The, the SEC says that you know there's too much tick constrainedness, although some sophisticated issues have solved this by letting their stock prices increase. Of course, if you let your stock price increase, then the tick sizes become smaller and smaller in relative terms. Just to be a little bit more suspicious here, this is again a blow to payment forward flow. Part of the reason that people go off market to trade is because they want to use price points that they're not allowed to trade at on the market. So if you let the market have those price points, suddenly you've just taken away a big part of the value proposition of wholesaling. Absolutely true. And the other reason that particularly dark pools, but also the wholesalers were invented was to combat what was perceived as to be relatively high exchange fees. Hmm. And so married to the, the tick change will it be a decrease in the fees that exchanges can charge on a given trade. Their yield per trade, the difference between what they rebate and what they charge will likely remain the same or similar. But the actual active fee will move from something close to three-tenths of a penny down to 0.05 of a penny. And so the difference between trading for free on a wholesaler and paying four or five mils at an exchange is far lower. Mm. But it also means that the rebate that is being given to liquidity providers is also going to decrease. And some of the incentive for providing liquidity decreases, which leads us to a question, what's the impact on liquidity? Are we going to go from a market Say in a given stock, you're typically a penny wide, 10,000 shares on both the bid and offer on average. Are we going to go to a market that's slightly tighter, say eight-tenths of a penny wide, but only 3,000 on bid and offer? Because without the rebate harvesting opportunity, there isn't as much incentive to post passively. Possibly. Maybe the liquidity that is posted in the lit markets will be more quote-unquote natural, which is to say that the longer-term investors are able to capture the spread, capture the passive liquidity more often because they're not being disintermediated by so-called rebate harvesters. Hmm. But that also means there's more information every time they post a bid and offer. When you post out loud and there's no intermediation within the market, everybody knows that that's a real institutional order and that's a signal to the market and you can see some, some sort of ignition into the market. 
So you may force the institutional community to start using dark orders. And particularly if you can post a dark order one-tenth of a penny above the prevailing bid or below the prevailing offer and capture that inbound flow, why am I posting out loud and offering up a signal free to the street? So there's a lot of unknown implications to liquidity. And we don't really have an outline for what success is in the eyes of the SEC. Yeah, what's their KPI exactly? I mean, you were bringing up uh, how much depth is going to be on the book after the tick size changes. How are we going to know that this works? Right. It's always easy to decide what success looks like after the fact. We've all probably worked in businesses where we've seen managers that decide six months after they make a change whether it was successful and they go and cherry pick the numbers. I always prefer a manager that's going to tell me we expect X and if we get Y, it's a failure and we're going to unwind it. Let's do that before the the proposal goes through. That just makes more sense. This kind of gets into some wider issues about what the SEC is doing. This is a, a fairly dramatic market structure change. You know, in my view, it's merited, but still it's fairly dramatic. And yet we don't know exactly what it is that the SEC is shooting for here. It's pretty clear this is about PFOF. For example, it says the commission is concerned that subpenny retail orders are not exposed to competitive forces on the public market. So at what point do we know that they're exposed to the public market? Like how much here is enough? And then you you start also asking wider questions like, does the SEC necessarily know what right pricing looks like on a limit order book in the first place? Isn't the price of a service the province of markets? And without a KPI, it does feel like meddling without a specific goal in mind. And it leaves me questioning what the role of a regulator is in this particular setting. Yeah, in particular, we're talking about four offerings that were put forward on the 14th. You have other offerings, proposals that have been put forward earlier in the year around the definitions of ATSs, around short sell disclosures, enforcements around short sell exemptions. At the end of the day, if something goes wrong, we're not going to know what the cause is. There's a reason that a doctor will only give you one new medicine at a time, and it's Mm. because they want to monitor how you react. If I give you seven new medicines and you have an allergic reaction, I don't know what to stop. Which one? You have to stop it all, and you said just a minute ago that there's some merit behind this. The real risk is there is some merit to tinkering with things like tick size. There is some question about this flow being taken off exchange that probably deserves a better and larger debate. But if you throw seven things at the market at once and it fails, nobody's going to want to do this again for another couple of generations. I feel like the SEC is almost, you know, they're risking damaging These proposals, if they don't work, if something goes wrong here, it will appear like all of these ideas are at fault instead of just one of them. And, you know, as I like the tick size proposal, I worry that it would get blamed for something that's, you know, not attributable to that particular intervention. Now, we are going to get to the auctions in a second, but in my introduction, I did say we were going to have a Canadian lens. Hmm. This is the one that's most likely to leak into the Canadian markets. We're probably going to have to shadow or outright copy these tick sizes, at least for names that are interlisted, listed in both the U.S. and Canadian markets. But most likely for all of our names, we're going to have to have a similar type of regime, both on the tick sizes and on the exchange fees. So any impact they have on U.S. liquidity is going to be on Canadian liquidity. I asked you at the start why we care about the U.S., and you kind of suggested that what they do resonates around the world. 
it's going to very directly resonate in the Canadian market for Canadian investors. I mean, imagine uh, going to your broker and saying, hi, I'd like to buy this stock. You can get it at two prices, a better one in the U.S. and a worse one in Canada. And this is the way with the interlisted stocks. Right. The, the liquidity providers are going to go where the optionality is best. If we can't offer the same pricing optionality, we're going to be watching our market trade elsewhere. And our market is far too important to the Canadian economy just to watch it go away. This is the one that has attracted the most attention, the so-called order competition proposal. The big idea, the complaint is in the proposal, wholesalers are isolated from competition. In fact, the SEC has done a big analysis on these wholesalers, suggesting that they fall short of the gains that they should be offering to their customers at $1.5 billion. So what we want to do to correct this is put them in greater competition. The statistic comes from the realized spread. This is a way of trying to get at how much money a wholesaler makes or actually a market maker. You look at the bid-ask spread net of price impact and you basically say, okay, the price impact is cost to the market maker or to the wholesaler because that's the price moving against them. Whatever is less is their revenue. They found with the realized spread analysis, this $1.5 billion number, and so the solution here is going to be, okay, well, there's kind of, there's not enough competition. These people are making too much money by this analysis, so we need to find a way to get them to put up more value to the customer, and so they have this big proposal. And the proposal is that for regular retail clients, that is clients that trade less than 40 orders a day on average, the orders cannot be matched by a wholesaler unless the wholesaler is willing to give midpoint execution before first going to some competitive market. One proposal would be a set of auctions that would be run by any of the major exchanges, any exchange with over 1% market share. Those auctions would then broadcast an intent to buy or sell. The intent would be out in the market for something between 100 and 300 milliseconds, which sounds very small to folks that aren't in the industry, but for those folks in the industry is a lifetime. Hmm. And then any participant, whether it was an agency algo, so somebody working a client order, or any liquidity providers, prop firms could interact and send a an order to offset that order. The order's could not be prioritized by time. So it's not that the fastest player gets to win. There would be presumably some round robin type of interaction for orders coming in at the same price. And clients would get the benefit of this increased competition, at least on the most liquid names. The question again comes down to this cross subsidization we've brought up. Is anybody going to send auction orders on the least liquid names? Are they going to be interested in trading these names? Is anybody going to offer up size improvement? Is anybody going to care on odd lots on names that don't trade liquidly? So are you going to get auctions? If you don't, you can then go back to the wholesaler, but the wholesaler's interest in fulfilling the orders that nobody else wants is not going to be great. They want to have uh, shot at all orders, not just the orders that nobody else is interested in. So this is a big one. These are called qualified auctions at new open competition trading centers. I, I love the regulatees uh, surrounding this proposal. The SEC has invented a market structure out of whole cloth. And so we're sort of standing here trying to figure out, okay, what do we make of this? Uh, again, what's the KPI? What are they trying to solve for? And then what do we think the likely effect uh, is going to be on market quality? 
Yeah, and, and to me, it's it's interesting because if you look just at, as we talked about with the best X, if I'm forced to go to a midpoint first, nobody's going to quote in the auction because the only orders that are going to go to the auction are orders that nobody wanted at the midpoint. Anything that goes to the auction then goes back to the wholesaler. The wholesaler doesn't want to be third on a list of three. Mm-hmm. That's a terrible place to be. You know, you are going to be adversely selected every time. This seems redundant to me. If you're doing best X and you're forcing me to try and get midpoint, why are the auctions there? 100 to 300 milliseconds seems really tiny, but it's actually extremely large, particularly in hyper-liquid names. You look at a name like Ford, for example. Even on a regular day, you could easily have five or 10 of these auctions going at one time. The technical challenge of having multiple auctions going at any given time for the exchange that's operating it for the data providers, for the liquidity providers that are supposed to be responding to it, it's mind-numbing to think of. It's going to turn a lot of people off for some questionable value, and you've already told everybody that they have to go to midpoint first anyway. This is the fifth shot into the deer that was taken down by the first shot. It seems really irrelevant and really redundant. It's so big, and it's kind of sudden, although they've flagged it. I find myself thinking about, okay, so putting my regulator hat on, you know, what is it that they're they're trying to solve that they didn't think, as you said, was solved by the other four bullets? So a regulator looks at wholesaling, and they see that wholesalers pay a price to access order flow. And I guess the intuition here is that the price that they're paying isn't set by market. It's not competitive enough. And it's all over the language that is used here, that these realized spreads are too large. Therefore, there's a lack of competition among the wholesalers. Now, this is an industry where Jane Street came in about three years ago and now has 10% of the market share. It seems to me to be one in which people are offering different payments for the order flow. And that's what makes me start questioning the analysis. There's no attempt to get those payments in the SEC's uh, $1.5 billion number uh, that shows that these people are isolated from competition. If you're trying to figure out what profits they're making, wouldn't you want to net out all their costs, including the payment that they make for the order flow? The technology spend that these wholesalers are putting into the market is immense. When you think about the order flow that was going through some of these wholesalers in January of 2021 when GameStop and ANC were trading – and some of them didn't have a single minute of outage time. The mm. SEC hasn't considered what does it cost to run these centers. You're just looking at what's the net revenue. Well, yeah, the revenue is big, but there are costs, and you have to consider those costs. And those costs aren't just hockey tickets and stake. It's real servers and telecom and data analysis. It's undertaking real risk. And updating models on a regular basis because there are changes in behavior, whether it's Reddit-driven or it's the change in retail behavior when they went to zero commission and you saw a real mix to more savvy, more regular trading than you had from retail prior to that. These guys are on the hook every day and they can't turn it off because we don't know what's happening on Reddit today. There's a lot of risk. We're just not going to show up. They have to be there every day and that risk isn't free. Yeah, it's a form of insurance in a way. And these people, when they're paying for the order flow, they also have a contract that guarantees a fill. 
And that is not something that any exchange offers as a product. So when they get involved in this contractual arrangement, there are a lot of risks that don't exist in the other market, the exchange market, to which the SEC is comparing the wholesalers. It's interesting that the SEC is alleging an issue with oligopoly in this market, even though, you know, I think it it seems pretty clear that there is some competition going on. The remedy just fascinates me, putting every order one by one up for auction. And there's something to it. That's what you would want to do in a theoretical setting if you want to make sure, like doubly sure, that there's a competitive price for a good, you put it up for sale. I mean, that's what a central limit order book is doing. It's a continuous auction. So it's like a second order order book. You know, not only is there an order book for the price to buy the security, now we have another one for the opportunity to trade with the counterparty who is on the other side. It's a double auction. It's really fascinating. It's complicated. They didn't invent it. There's a few exchanges who are, who are trying to do this kinds of thing right now. But in sort of imposing it, I think they're trying to make this idea that gets a little bit of traction here and there, the solution for everybody. So, Corey, we've talked a fair bit here about mostly what we don't think is right. If I take inspiration from John Oliver, who quite often does long pieces about challenges in the U.S. and around the world, he always says that if at the end of a 20 or 25-minute arc, he doesn't offer up at least some semblance of a solution, then he's absolutely wasted everybody's time. So we think that maybe there's some interesting kernels of a problem. What would you be doing if you were the SEC or if you were given keys to the castle for a day? What should they be working on, whether that's an actual policy proposal or it's more data analysis before a proposal? Where do we think they should be headed? I am going to double down here on the tick size idea. And, you know, you know me, Doug, I've been talking about this for a while. I've often thought that almost all of the U.S. equity market problems come from a tick that is too wide for a variety of the stocks that have a high volume in the U.S. market. And these are sort of the S&P 500 stocks. The wide tick size set by Reg and MS, although tight for the time, especially compared to the eights that used to trade uh, in the 90s, has resulted in people desiring price points that don't exist. In order to access price points that don't exist, you can go to a venue that doesn't have hard quotes. That's a dark venue, a wholesaler, an internalizer, or any kind of OTC mechanism. So we have this desire for any way to trade at a price that, for regulatory reasons, can't exist on the open market. Now we start getting involved in that, and we find that we can monetize some of the segments of the market. We can say, hey, in particular, retail clients would really, really like to trade at some of these missing prices that don't exist. Why don't we separate them? And then you get the business of wholesaling where, yeah, the retail clients do get to get a tighter bid-ask spread than everybody else. I think by enabling a more dynamic tick size like they have, and maybe even trying to figure out a way to let venues compete on tick size, which is always difficult because venues will, will try to undercut each other, but you can handle that by relaxing some of the best execution standards. And indeed, what they're proposing is reasonable diligence, not, for example, order protection. Then you can start getting people saying, okay, we're going to find the right tick size for the security that balances the need to have more prices with the need to have orders interact on you know, a single market. I, I like the tick size proposal a lot. What would you say? I would agree. And ironically, the tick size is what the industry themselves has brought to the SEC over the last number of years. To NASDAQ's credit in the U.S., 
They introduced something called intelligent ticks. All of the major U.S. exchange groups have come out with their own tick proposals. They don't talk amongst themselves about tick proposals for fear of violating certain competition rules. But those tick proposals have quite often been brought to them by participants in the market, both liquidity provider or prop firms, as well as the agency firms. There seems to be wide buy-in for that. So it seems to make sense. Let's try the tick proposal. That's drug number one. Let's see if it fixes the problem we believe exists. Let's have a measurement period. Let's have some KPIs before we start. Let's have a reasonable implementation. And then at the end of the measurement period, let's decide was this a success or failure and do we need to do anything further? Can we improve the 605 report format so it's no longer in machine language and is readable by humans? <laughs> okay, uh, fine. I'm not too fussed about that. I don't think we need to do auctions right now. I think that's just a massive distraction. If you do both auctions and tick at the same time, you don't know what the impact is. The best X, I think most of what's in the best X around having meetings and all the, the metrics that the dealers have to look for, most of the good dealers already far surpass what's proposed. So with the exception of the notion that you have to do midpoint, I think everything else is already there. But let's start with one medicine. Let's see if the symptoms go away or let's see if we have to take another step. That just makes more sense to me and I think to most of the market practitioners. So I have a question I'd like to ask you, you know, since we're proposing remedies. Neither of us have seemed to say anything kind of directly negative about payment for order flow. And to play devil's advocate for a moment, I feel like I, I have a sense for why this is such a distasteful practice for some people. It, payment for order flow involves a kickback. My broker is acting as my fiduciary and trying to fill my order at the best place for me. Not for him, but for me. That's the job of the broker. Now, the broker goes out there and looks at a number of markets, and some of them pay him to trade there, and some don't. And of course, wouldn't you know it, a variety of research on, for example, Haoshangzhu uh, and the Orderflow Waterfall, it finds that, yeah, the places that pay more are the first places that get a fill. So that combined with, you know, the SEC's vision of having a more unified, integrated market, I think, is one of the things they're going for, really leads some people to say this is kind of a root of all evil practice, right? It's not something that we should be doing. It's unethical. Some theoretical work has shown that it should be resulting in worse outcomes for the end user. I do have some sympathy for this line of reasoning. I don't know about you. Yeah, I, I have some sympathy for it, although I will say that the exchanges replicate some of that in some of their, um, particularly the inverted or the so-called hmm. take-make venues. So there are firms that can send to an exchange and also get paid for, for executing. The other thing I would say, you, you mentioned the Robert Battaglia, Bob Jennings paper earlier, they find that those retail firms that don't accept payment for order flow tend to route in a similar fashion to those same wholesalers. So part of it is about certainty of execution. Part of it is about compliance. Part of it is the price improvement is beneficial in their, in their view. So I think if you want to get into the siphoning the flow off to a subset of the market and it's not available to the institutional investors, I have a little more sympathy for that than the payment for order flow argument. But I think like let's define what the actual problem is as opposed to, oh, I think three firms are making a lot of money and I don't like that for no reason. Let's define what we think the, 
benefit to the market as a whole will be let's define those KPIs and let's try and solve for it with one precision shot instead of just buckshot everywhere and hoping we happen to blindly hit the right target. For me, the KPI would be, is there more depth or at least equivalent depth available within the old bid-ask spread yeah. with some prices at least being tighter? So if you had you know 5,000 shares available at a one-cent spread, do you still have 4,500 at that one-cent spread and then 500 of those orders migrated to the interior? That, for me, would be a KPI for the tick size. As for the auctions, my fear is that the KPI here would be, are the wholesalers making less money? That is the only thing that the proposal is alleging to be, you know, the difficulty here. Right. And that's that's a challenge. I don't know how you put a price tag on their assuming risk. It is a competitive market to the extent that somebody is willing to make less money than, say, Citadel, the market leader. They're going to come in and offer more price improvement and or more payment for order flow and presumably win that. So it is competitive, not on an order by order basis, but competitive over time in days, weeks or months. That competition eventually gets to all the participants in the market. So it's a competitive market, just not on an order-by-order order basis, but it effectively gets to all the orders in time. There's a paper by Andre Shilko that I mentioned earlier that finds that over time, although not immediately, sort of period by period, brokers do route more flow to wholesalers who give better execution outcomes. It's, it's a slower process than order-by-order, order, which I admit has a I mean, I'm a kind of attracted to the idea from a, uh, an absolutist standpoint. It's like, now we've really got them, order by order. But yeah, I mean, it's not as if there was a lack of competition here. And that's what I find a little troublesome about the analysis, especially because there's no attempt to account for the cost of the payment itself. And if I compare that to the buy side, the most sophisticated buy side clients in the world, and having not that long ago worked for a couple of very large, very sophisticated sell-side firms providing algos to these players. They use algo wheel services or they route based on execution quality, but they don't do it on every order. They look once a quarter because they want to get a big enough sample size to determine that Corey's algos are better than Doug. So Corey's going to get 25% of my VWAP flow and Doug's only going to get 15%. And by Q3, Doug's down to 10% because he's somebody else has, has leapfrogged him. The buy side, the sophisticated big trillion dollar players are doing the same sort of competition on a periodic basis, not on a continuous basis. Otherwise, you're chasing your tail. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a similar idea that the retail firms are looking towards which wholesaler is giving me better execution over time, not who gave me better execution in the last minute. Yep. So at a high level, thank you all for joining us. I hope you understand some of the proposals that are put out there, some of the impacts we think they're going to have. We look forward to discussions. We certainly implore our listeners to reach out. Let us know what we got right. Let us know what we got wrong. Let us know what you want us to talk about next. We look forward to our next discussion in the coming weeks and months. And until then, may all your imbalances be offset. <laughs> the the, the uh, traditional blessing uh, <laughs> made on the floor of, a, of an exchange uh, at the end of every day. We gather around and hold hands and say that. Kumbaya. Now, for more information on the Montreal Exchange, please visit m-x.ca. And for more insights from Capital Markets leaders and my TMX colleagues, please visit tmx.com forward slash POV. Mm -hmm.